grace be you and peace from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I invite you to open to Micah chapter 6, our first lesson for today, is God through the prophet Micah tells us what he requires. Pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Israel knew that they were in trouble with God. God had just called as his witnesses the foundations of the earth and the mountains. Not just people who have been around for a few years, but the mountains and the foundations of the earth who could give witness to God's whole dealing throughout their whole history with Israel. And that could give witness to the way in which they had responded to God's dealing with them. The mountains and the foundations of the earth were there to witness what God had done for his people, bringing them out of Egypt, performing plagues and signs, dividing the Red Sea so they could cross on dry ground, and then bringing those waters back to destroy those who were pursuing them, rescuing them from their enemies. The mountains and the foundations of the earth had been there to witness Israel's response whining, they're grumbling, they're complaining at God, their failure to put their trust in him to provide for them and protect them. They'd been there to witness how Balaam tried to curse Israel for money. And witness how God, every time he opened his mouth to speak a curse, caused a prophecy and a wonderful blessing to come out instead. And they'd been there to witness how the people later fell for Balaam's trap. How they accepted the invitation of the Moabite women to come and join them in the disgusting worship of their idols. They'd been there to witness all that God had done for them. How he showered his blessing on them. How he kept his promise, brought them into the promised land. Defeated their enemies for them. Knocked down the walls of Jericho. Made them prosperous powerful as a nation under David and Solomon. And they also witnessed Israel's response, how they turned away from God, how they rejected worship at Jerusalem, how they set up the golden calf idols in the north and the south, and how lately they had turned away from any semblance of worship of the true God at all for the worship of Baal. Israel had been complaining saying that God had burdened them. They thought that they were doing enough for God, that God should owe them something and give them something good. But now that God had held before their eyes his perfect faithfulness to them and their unfaithfulness to him, they felt their guilt. They wanted to know what to do. We've been tempted to fall into that same trap as Israel. We look around us and we see all kinds of evil and wickedness in the world and we're tempted to pat ourselves on the back and say, I thank God that I'm not as bad or as evil or as wicked as they are. After all, I'm here in church and I support the Lord's work with my offerings and I do everything I can to help my neighbor and show that I love my neighbor as myself. 
And then we're tempted when things don't go the way we think they should. When we're facing an illness or a disease or some trouble in our lives to fall into that trap of saying, Hey, Lord, what's the deal? Look at all the things I've been doing for you. Don't I deserve something better than this? When we begin to think that way, God calls those mountains and the fountains of the earth to witness against us. They've seen all of our whining and complaining over the years against God. They've seen all our unfaithfulness to his commands. They've seen our lack of trust in God to provide and protect us. They've seen how we've trusted in government or medicine or science more than we've trusted in God. They're witnesses against us. In fact, we don't really need the mountains and the fountains, foundations of the earth to witness against us. All we need to do is look in the mirror. God's law and our conscience convict us and make us feel our guilt. We don't really want to say, God, you've burdened me. God, you deserve, I deserve to have something better from you. Give me what I've earned for you because that would mean you would be sent off to languish in the pit of hell forever. With Israel, with that crowd on Pentecost, who were cut to the heart when the Apostle Peter said that that Savior you were looking for, that Messiah, God sent him, you killed him. We need to acknowledge our guilt. And when we do, We'll join Israel, we'll join those people on Pentecost and say, what should we do? How can we be right with God? As Israel thinks about that question, they offer a number of suggestions. How should I bow down to God on high? Should I appear before him with burnt offerings, with one-year-old calves? Will the Lord be delighted with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my rebellion, the fruit of my body? for the sin of my soul. Answer those questions? No, none of those things will work. There's nothing anyone can offer God to repay him that would pay for his sins. In fact, thinking that way, thinking that you can offer anything to God in order to earn your forgiveness does just the opposite. It increases your guilt, especially offering your own child. It would just increase your guilt and separate you even more from God. No one can ever give to God that God should repay him, the Bible says. Everything already belongs to him. There isn't anything that we could offer to God that could pay for even one sin. Even the sacrifices that God commanded in the Old Testament didn't give you forgiveness. It wasn't something you did in order to earn forgiveness from God. They were there to remind you of your guilt and to point you what God would do for you. That he would send a lamb, the seed of a woman, a savior, who would pay for your sins in your place. What does the Lord require? He doesn't require you sacrifice something precious to you in order to earn forgiveness from him. He doesn't require you to do anything that's not going to work. No payment that we could offer for sin would ever be enough. So what does he require? He has told you, mankind, what is good. 
What does the Lord require from you except to carry out justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? God has told you what is good. Only he is good. Only he could do what was required to pay for your sins and the sins of the whole world. And he told you what that would be all the way back to Adam and Eve when he told them that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. He's told you what is good, that Jesus is good. He's the only one who was perfectly good, who lived without sin. He's the only one who, because he had no sin of his own, could have the Father punish him for everyone else's sins, for yours and for mine. He's the only one who could die a death that was precious enough in the sight of God to ransom the world, to redeem us all. He's the only one who, by his resurrection from the dead, declared victory over death and devil. God has told us what is good. He's told us that Jesus was good in our place. He's told us that salvation is a free gift of his grace because of what Jesus has done in our place. He's told us that through faith in Jesus, he now considers us good. Through faith in Jesus, he considers us righteous in his sight, heirs of eternal life. Is there anything better than that? Nothing better than knowing that in Jesus, we're heirs of eternal life, our sins are forgiven, we're considered perfect and without sin. That's better than a thousand rams offered in sacrifice. That's better than 10,000 streams and rivers of oil. That's precious, priceless. What does God require? Now that you've seen that he's been faithful, even though you have been unfaithful, now that you've seen that he is good, that he gives you forgiveness and eternal life because of what Jesus has done for you, I simply ask that you humbly acknowledge what he's done and give him thanks and praise. What does the Lord require from you? Walk humbly with your God. Do you daily admit that you don't deserve anything from God, not even the air that you breathe? Do you daily admit that what you deserve from Him is really His punishment for your unfaithfulness? Humbly come to Him before, before Him every day and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and forgive me, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done in my place. Each and every day to put yourself under God's word and let his word be the last word no matter what anyone else is saying or doing around you. To make God and his will more important than anyone or anything else. To remember what Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And having been humbled by seeing our sins and rejoicing and giving thanks to God for the forgiveness that he's given us in Jesus, we are moved to carry out justice and to love mercy. We strive to do what God says is just and right. 
We strive to make sure that in our dealings with others, we're not lying or cheating or taking advantage of someone for our own gain. We're making sure that we're looking out for those who can't help themselves. That we're willing to sacrifice something, to give something up to help someone who is in need. That we're willing to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and to defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow. Those who are easy targets for abuse. Have experienced God's mercy. We strive to love mercy and show mercy in our dealings with others. We do our best to take people's words and actions in the kindest possible way. We strive to be a giver instead of a taker. Instead of wishing that those who have hurt us would be harmed or get what they deserve, we pray and look for opportunities to tell them the mercy of God, the good news about their forgiveness in Jesus. As Paul says, we strive to live with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, especially when it comes to our brothers and sisters in the faith, in the body of Christ. What does the Lord require? Really nothing that we can give him. There isn't anything that we can give him. No way that we can earn anything from him. What does he want? Peter put it this way in Pentecost. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wants our hearts. He wants us to see our sin and our need for a Savior. And then when he shows us who that Savior is, that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, to forgive us, to humbly and simply say, thank you, Lord. As our hearts are filled with humble faith every day, we will be moved to worship him daily. We will strive to carry out justice and to love mercy seeing that everything that we do and say gives him honor and glory. Amen.